Some of you may have heard of the writer Jerry Bridges. He was a great writer of popular Christian books, and it was a real loss, I think, to the Christian world when he passed away in 2016. And uh, if you've read his books, perhaps one of his most famous ones was titled Respectable Sins, Confronting the Sins We Tolerate. And the title really says it all. There are sins that we tolerate, that eat away at our joy and our satisfaction that we have, that is available to us as followers of Jesus Christ. Bridges called these sins respectable because we seem to engage in them without any sense that we are actually sinning. We tolerate them. One of those that Jerry Bridges identified was a spirit of discontentedness. I wonder if we can identify with that after three years of the pandemic. Put in more contemporary terms, the spirit of complaining. A lot. We complain when we're unhappy with our lives, whether it be our circumstances, our health, or our level of wealth. And there are lots of other sins that he talks about there. He lists some circumstances which can cause disappointment, which the devil can twist in our hearts. We experience a toleration of our complaint when we are in an unfulfilling or low-paying job. We experience this at times when we're single, well into our midlife or beyond, and we don't want to be. We experience it in married life when we have an inability to bear children. And despite what you hear, sometimes marriage does not always increase joy. Sometimes there is strife and trouble. Sometimes, though we might expect perfect physical health, we experience the effects of the curse in our bodies. And we have physical disabilities and chronic pain and continual poor health. And I'm sure that the pandemic has opened up a whole Pandora's box of other circumstances that we can complain about. And Bridges in the book says that we are simply discontent when we're expressing that we do not have faith in God's wisdom, nor do we accept God's sovereign control over our lives. And in doing this, he says, we show that our thinking in itself is flawed. Instead of seeing our purpose in life to bring glory to God, we believe life is about our glory. When a lack of finances, possessions, or difficult life circumstances work to bring us, do not work to bring us glory, we become discontent. We complain. And unchecked, this leads to a heart of bitterness. The life of the Christian is supposed to be different. It's supposed to be full of praise. And we try and instruct our children in this way. When our children were younger, and even now as they grow into being teenagers, we still have one that's seven, we would quote this verse an awful lot, and maybe some of the parents can identify with this, from Philippians 2. Do all things without complaining or arguing, 
Sound familiar? That you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish in the sight of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Now, I think we understand, even as we give instruction to our children, that they aren't perfectly able to obey this in their sinful state. So it's actually an opportunity for us, when they're struggling, to apply the gospel as we address complaining attitudes. This is one of the the things that we do as parents, as Christian parents, as we seek to help them understand that their failure to be able to control the complaining attitudes relates to their ultimate lack of contentment. We might be able to try and fill that void with the things of this world, but ultimately, they do not last and they do not help because more circumstances come alongside. Only God can make us peaceful in our hearts and fulfill our deepest needs and desires. Now, that sounds great, doesn't it? But the question we as parents need to ask ourselves becomes more personal. Am I truly modeling this before my children? Am I really seeking to be blameless and innocent in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation of this world? Or do I hide my own discontentment behind a a veil of twisted sarcasm and waste much of my breath on complaints? The sad reality over the past number of years is that as an adult, I think I need these reminders even more, even as a pastor. It's true that there are a lot of things to be concerned about. And there's a need for us as Christians when we struggle with our circumstances to take it to the Lord. But we are called, even commanded, not to be discontented. In fact, the Apostle Paul instructs the Thessalonians, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Jesus commands us to be the light of the world. And we think, well, how do we do this? How do we bear that light? I mean, look around. Look at the world that's around us. It's pretty bleak in a lot of ways. People are evil toward each other. You've seen what's happened with Russia and Ukraine and how how the, the armies have come and raped and pillaged the land. You realize people are evil towards each other, right, Pastor? The world is full of corruption. There are many times where we're tempted to just say, life sucks. Life is awful. We don't naturally look toward praise. In our hearts, we struggle most with sin, darkness, and discontentment. How do we address this? Well, it's interesting what we see in in terms of contemporary culture, how we are to address this, right? One method is escape, right? That's the the popular method today. We uh, use terms like mindfulness. Those of you who are in the medical field, I'm sure you're being taught mindfulness as as a tool to address your patient's discontent and complaints. And mindfulness is really built on Eastern religion and the idea that we need to rise above, that we need to 
to, to, to get above the morass and, and just sort of settle in on ourselves and, and, and empty ourselves, right, through meditation, emptying our minds of the troubles that are there. Well, that's just denying the reality and escaping it. It's not actually addressing it. Some people think, well, no, you need to change your attitude. So when my son comes to me looking very sad at the lack of chocolate milk in his glass, I should remind him that his glass is half full and not half empty. I should tell him to put on a happy face. That's the substance of a lot of teaching that's out there. It's all about attitude. Some of you may have heard, and I know that she's popular around the world, but I think she's quite popular in the Caribbean, Rhonda Byrne. She's the one who sold the, 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 the popular book, The Secret. 30 million copies of that book have been sold worldwide. And she just released another one called The Greatest Secret. I don't know, what the, it wasn't enough of a secret before. But in her book, she claims essentially the same thing. Basically, so if you read one, you've read them all. But what she calls, she, she, she says that using what she calls the law of attraction, whatever that is, you can get whatever you want from a parking space to a cure for the disease and the cancer that's there, or just understanding, coming to a, a personal self-realization that you have the power to overcome your circumstances if you just believe that you do. And I was thinking about this, and I was thinking, well, maybe this is what I need to do, and my son comes with his half glass of chocolate milk, quite discontented that we're running out. I can just tell him that he needs to wish it, to actualize it in his mind, and pretend that it's real, and magically, Daddy will change the rules and give him more chocolate milk before he finishes his meal. Or not. Sadly, it's not just Ron Byrne that teaches this. Right? All of the self-help gurus from Oprah Winfrey on down says that the law of attraction here, this is something that's been popularized. People choose who they want to be is essentially what they are all about. That's what, what Oprah has said on her new O, o Network in, in the States and elsewhere. But that same teaching isn't just in secular society, it's also in the churches. This is the same teaching that's being presented as the gospel, which it is not, in prosperity preachers, who teach you that you have the power in yourself to overcome anything, financial distress, sickness, illness, if you claim God's promise of prosperity in Jeremiah 29, 11, which I'm sure many of you can recite by heart. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. That's a beautiful verse, by the way, but it's one of the most misapplied in the scriptures. Because what's the context? It's a promise of restoration for the Jews. They were in exile. And the proper application of that promise, of that verse, is that God keeps his promises. But he has not promised that to you necessarily. What is the promise that Jesus makes in the New Testament to us in the New Covenant? 
Matthew 16 says this, Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. It's a very different approach, isn't it? Health, wealth, and prosperity is not what Jesus preaches. He does preach an eternity of joy and a wealth of relationship. But he does not promise that you will have the BMW and the wealthy, healthy life here on earth. The psalm that I want to direct your attention to this morning, Psalm 150, has a different approach than mindfulness, than blind optimism, selective Bible reading, or actualization. No, there is actually a biblical approach to dealing with the evils of this world without descending into despair and bitterness and philosophical nihilism. You see, what we see and what we heard, I, I hope as we were reading it earlier, is you've got a sense of the unmitigated joy, the praise. But how do you get there? What changes our attitudes so that we desire, as the psalmist does in verse 6, to use our every breath to praise the Lord? Sometimes when we come to the book of Psalms, we think of it as just a collection of 150 poems. But the Psalter is not a random collection of Psalms. It's a progression, much like a great symphony. There are solemn and quiet and contemplative parts. There are lamentations. But gradually and majestically, if you read the Psalter from beginning to end, it climbs to this great and grand conclusion. It starts to really accelerate in the, the books. There are five books within the book of Psalms. And they, 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 they go through and they look at various aspects. But, but near the end, with these Psalms of Ascent, Psalms 120 to Psalm 134, we have the Psalms that the Israelites would sing as they would come up to the temple, as they would come up to worship. And it's no, it's, it's no accident the way that the Psalter is organized and designed. It begins with Psalm 1, a psalm that focuses on meditation on God and His Word. Because meditation on God and His Word is the key that keeps us safe and focused on the journey to salvation. Properly understood biblical meditation, not the the process of emptying yourself and being nothing, achieving nirvana, but that biblical meditation is all about filling yourself with the Word of God. I have hidden your Word in my, my heart that I might not sin against you. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. That's the purpose of biblical meditation. To fill ourselves up here is that once we meditate on these, we are able to move from the the, the despair and the discouragement of our circumstances to a life that is filled with praise, even despite difficult circumstances. And this chorus in the Psalms where we have all of these different undulations, ups and downs, cries for help, imprecatory songs, calling down God's judgment against his enemies, comes to a great and grand conclusion where all those themes come together. It ends with what we call these Hallel songs. They start back in Psalm 146 and they finish here in Psalm 150. 
And each of these psalms begin and end with a rising hallelujah, which is the Hebrew, hallel, yah, means praise to the Lord. Praise to Yahweh. Hallelujah. Praise Jehovah. That was the first one we sang today in Psalm 146. Now, as you read through this very short psalm here that we're looking at this, this morning, Psalm 150, it's the shortest of these five Hallel Psalms, but it is not short on praise. Containing this, this phrase, hallelujah, ten times, and in various other forms, three times in just six short verses. And what's interesting about this is that it's not just sort of an abstract proclamation, it's actually a command. We're commanded to praise Yahweh, to praise the Lord. It's a call to praise the God who made us. It is literally living a hallelujah life. And what's interesting is if you go again, looking at the structure of the Psalms and the progression, each of the four Psalms, each of the previous four books of Psalms, ends with a hallelujah or praise the Lord. Psalm 41, verse 13. Psalm 72, verse 18 to 19. Psalm 89, verse 52. And Psalm 106, verse 48. Of course, here, the ten hallelujahs in it. There is indeed a real structure here. Now what's interesting is that no immediate reasons are offered for the command to praise the Lord. One author put it this way. The reason for that is that it's ultimately because all the reasons have been given in Psalms 1 to 149. Instead of motivation, the psalmist simply summons, commands, orders God's people to give God all the praise. As one popular praise song out there puts it, there are 10,000 reasons. And there are 10,000 times 10,000 reasons to give God the praise. The psalmist here is just saying, just do it. Now, that can sound abrupt and cold, right? Just do it, right? Nike. But not if we have deeply explored the dimensions of our experience, if we've meditated on who God actually is in the rest of the Psalter. Then out of the depths, we can praise God. It's our duty. It's our privilege. It's our blessing. Have you ever thought about the structure of the Psalms. How, how awful it would be that the book of Psalms would end on a note of lament. The book is filled with lament. There are many, many Psalms that are lamenting the world and its circumstances. But lament isn't the only, and it isn't, most importantly, the last word in the life of faith. This is often called the, the hymn book of the church. It's meant to lead us into relationship with God, that there will finally be praise. And Psalm 150 calls us to anticipate that last word in our worship, even in our present lament and often difficult circumstances. In this final psalm, the psalmist covers all aspects of praise. Like a journalist, he covers all of his bases. Where do we worship? Why do we worship? How do we worship? And who worships? Those are our headings this morning. And they're very simple. We're going to unpack this song together. Where do we worship? How do we worship? Why do we worship? And who worships? But before we do that, let's ask God again to help us, to open our eyes to his word. Let's pray. Father, your word is a lamp to our feet. 
and a light to our path. And Lord, we confess before you, even as we come, even as we've been introduced to this text, Lord, we bear the weight of our sin. We bear, O oh Lord, how we have indeed grumbled and complained against you. And Lord, though you invite us to pour out our hearts before you, Lord, oftentimes we go beyond that. And so Lord, we pray, would you help us this morning to put all these things into perspective? And would you enable us, Lord, to praise you with a joyful heart, recognizing and contextualizing this world of sin, putting it in the light of your redemption, your hope, and your help. Bless us, Lord. Use me as an instrument of your grace, Lord. Open eyes and ears and hearts to the glory of your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the psalm begins really in verse 1 with telling us where we are to praise the Lord. Very simply, we're to praise God everywhere, on earth and in heaven. But the first thing the psalmist wants you to say is that you praise him in a place where people gather to worship in his sanctuary. Praise God. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Now, that seems basic, doesn't it? But I think the pandemic has challenged this in our thinking. Why do we come together? Why do we travel? Why do we spend expensive gas to come to church morning and the crazy people at CRBC come in the evening as well? Week after week. Why do we come together to study God's word together? And the simple answer to that is to give you more to praise the Lord for. To give you more joy. Praise that is empty and meaningless is absolutely, it can be dangerous. One of the reasons why we come together is to gain perspective, to gain reasons for joy. One of my favorite psalms in the whole Psalter is Psalm 73. And he begins, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my foot had almost slipped. And I like it because it's written by Asaph, who was a leader in the church. And he was just discouraged and depressed. Because even as he was leading the church, he was seeing how the wickedness of the world was flourishing all around him. And he's saying, you know, the, the, the wicked, they do evil all the time. And people, even believers, go after them. He's lamenting all this fact. But if you look at, at that psalm, the turning point in that psalm is, then I went into the sanctuary of God and I discerned their end. In other words, he came together in corporate worship and realized that all the things that the world is living for are empty. That they are unconnected to the, the, the God who created them and who gives them the good things. That they are worshiping the created things rather than the creator. And it's in worship that his joy is refreshed and refueled. His, his perspective is reset. And that's why we gather. We come to praise God in the sanctuary. Because it's not just us and our little YouTube at home. It's coming and seeing families come together. Sometimes one of the most encouraging things can be to see a family come in. And, and it's hard, isn't it, when you have kids, little kids, and you're trying to keep their attention. And, but you have a commitment. You're trying to train them up. And, and you may not realize this, moms and dads who struggle to take care of your kids, that you can be an encouragement to others in the congregation when they see that you're committed to raising them up to know the Lord. It's like, oh, I rejoice in seeing that. You want them to have the joy that you have. And you're willing to sacrifice yourself 
for the joy of your children. There's service. There's all kinds of ministry that goes on in the body of Christ that you and your YouTube doesn't see. I'm addressing the folks on YouTube here. I hope, I know that there's some of you who may not be able to come out, but if you can come, because you're meant to gather with the sanctuary, you're meant to gather with the people of God together, you're, you're missing out. Because the whole purpose of coming together is to give us content, to give us substance to our joy. There is a reason to rejoice, and it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the world has a sense where there's, if there's no content, if there's nothing there, then, then why would we rejoice? It's like those contestants that you sometimes see on, on reality shows like American Idol or, I don't know, is there a Bajan Idol? I'm not sure. But they come on and you see them all, and this is partly the reason why some people like to watch them. Because they have absolutely zero talent. And they come on and people like to laugh at them and mock them. But it's actually a sad situation. And sometimes it's that they don't have anybody in their life that is willing to give them honest feedback. You cannot carry a tune in a bucket. That's a loving phrase. Maybe not pronounced that way. Empty praise is not only bad, it's wrong. But when you come together and you hear biblical preaching, it tells you about God. It gives you reasons to praise God as your creator and savior. The gospel of God's grace to rescue miserable sinners like us provides us an endless source of fuel for our worship. And we study God's word to give us instructions on how to live for his praise. 1 Corinthians 10.31 tells us that whatever we do, whether we eat or drink, whatever we do, we do it to the glory of God. So how do we do that? In part, we learn to do that through the word preached and applied to us. The psalmist here is calling for communal worship and praise. And the location is in his sanctuary, his temple, his place where his people gather for worship, the assembly of the godly. Psalm 149, verse 1, puts it this way. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise in the assembly of the godly. Now that's important, isn't it? The call isn't to worship God in your homes. It is to worship God in the assembly of the godly. Because there is an effect in gathering together the corporate body of Jesus Christ. Much of the New Testament is consumed with imperative commands to the alone, to one another, each other. The yous are often plural. It's addressed to the church as we come together. So Hebrews 10.25 highlights this in the New Testament church where the writer says, We are not to neglect to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Because one of the things that coming to church on Sunday, coming to hear the word of God reminds us is that this isn't all that there is. That as we partake of the table, we are anticipating the marriage supper of the Lamb. Where we will dwell forever in glory with our Savior. We need this reminder, don't we, brothers and sisters? We need to gather together corporately. Not lazily drop out of our beds and flick on the live stream. But come together, sing, and praise to the
to the Lord. There is great joy in the assembly. There's great joy in the opportunity to gather together. And while community group is not required during the week, it is another opportunity to fellowship, to encourage each other, to build each other up. Avail yourselves of the means that God has given you in this local congregation. Means to access joy through fellowship, through bearing one another's burdens, through living life together. But notice that the psalmist doesn't just say it's on earth. Praise in his mighty heavens. God's glory is not limited to the earth. Neither should his praise be. We join the heavenly choir. Ephesians 2 verse 6. Paul puts us as being already seated in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. So when you are gathering to worship. And this is one of the things that just often blows my mind. When you gather to worship here. You're not just worshiping with the saints of Covenant Reformed Baptist Church in our little place in St. Michael on Pasture Road in Haggett's Hall. No, we are indeed engaging in a worship, a chorus of worship that extends across the earth and indeed engages the heavens. We are singing praises to the Lord even as the heavenly choir sings praises constantly. Glory to God in the highest. That's what, there's that glorious chorus in Revelation and on earth. There is to be similar things. And this is sort of a, a reflection of the reality. We are, as believers, engaged to be married in some way. We're like an engaged person. We're engaged to be married, but we can't enjoy the full privileges. We can have a taste of it when we come together as a body and worship God with our whole hearts, our souls, and our minds. Doesn't matter what you sound like in your singing. You sing to the Lord with your whole heart. I love what Luther said. He said, The Lord loves the croaking of the raven as much as the song of the nightingale. And he must, right? He created both. So whether you croak like a raven in the back or you sing like a nightingale, the Lord delights in you. And that's what you are called to do is delight in him. And the amazing thing is that Every Lord's Day, your songs are joined with billions around the earth. And one of the things I, I often think about as I, as I begin my day of worship is that other people in other places of the world are finishing their day of worship. In India and China, they're going to bed having spent the day worshiping the Lord. And we're just beginning the day. And when we go to bed tonight, our brothers and sisters on the West Coast will be beginning their worship. And it's this ongoing, undulating wave of worship. It's a, it's a foretaste of all of it. It makes this day the special day. We call it the best day of the week to our kids. But the reason why it's the best day of the week is because it is a down payment on heaven. We are here to gather, to be refreshed, to be reminded. Their lives are not just about the circumstances, but about the end and the future. So we've been encouraged here in verse 1. Where? On earth and in heaven. But why? Why are we called? There's got to be content. This is not mindlessness. Verse 2. Praise God. Praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Why do we come together to worship God? Because of His mighty deeds. They are matchless and unending. 
Psalm 106 puts it this way. Who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord or declare all His praise? Well, that means is that we can never run out of praise to equal God's activity and actions. Do you reflect on that? Do you think about the joy of His deeds in your life? Do you know the joy of your salvation? Or have you forgotten we just had two baptisms last week, and one of the things I love about baptisms is that you get to hear how God changed other people's lives. And it's like, wow, and your heart just resonates. Yes, I know what that's like. And it's almost a refreshment. And we need to do that. Maybe what we need to do is pull out and have those who gave testimonies a year ago do it again to remind themselves and us of God's grace. It's an amazing thing. Do you have the excitement the Apostle Paul did many years after his, after his conversion? As he says in that great long sentence in Ephesians 1, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ Jesus with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for the adoption of sons through Jesus Christ according to his purpose as well. And he goes on and on, and it's one sentence in the Greek. He's just thrilled. He's not some cold theologian. He's a follower of Jesus Christ, fueling his joy by meditating on the content of God and his purposes and his works. And as you reflect on that, if you're a believer this morning, perhaps the, the stirrings of joy are tugging at your heart. And these psalms point that this is not something that we keep to ourselves. Praise is not just me and muttering in my little corner. There's a multi-generational instruction that is given here. One generation tells another. One of the other psalms, Psalms 145, says, One generation will commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. You know that it's a privilege to tell the acts of God to your children? It's interesting, isn't it? We often give away books, uh, uh, children's books, to families in our church. And I've had several parents come to me and say, yeah, thank you so much for that book. It helped me to have joy, to see it simply presented as we went through. We saw the glory of God illustrated and applied simply to our children. It thrilled our hearts as well. That was one of my wife, wife's enjoyments of, of uh, homeschooling was to actually go back and learn the stuff again properly this time sometimes uh, when she did it. And there's a sense of that when we come and we instruct the children in family worship. Because it's not just the children that it's geared towards. It's meant to encourage all of us, parents, moms and dads, and children together. And it becomes a, a, a part of the lingo, a part of the culture of your family. This week, uh, Pastor John was talking about, uh, is reading through a series of devotions from uh, Thomas Watson. He used this antiquated language, talking about grapes, you know, a cluster of grapes, reflecting the goodnesses of God. And throughout the week, we said, oh, there's another grape. Oh, there's another grape, right? And we have these reminders of ways that we can encourage each other. God is showing us his goodness. And who hasn't had a cluster? I'm afraid if you're a grapeophile, you'll you'll not be able to connect with this particular illustration. But like a a juicy grapes, maybe it's because I'm in a hot environment in a sweaty suit. But that that idea of a refreshing grape bursting on your tongue, giving you delight and joy. Right? It's beautiful. It's beautiful. 
We need to teach our children to worship. Do you teach the children to give thanks for their blessings to God? Do you teach them to give back to the Lord? Their time, their energies, the efforts, even their little pocket monies. Do you practice thank offering to the goal of God? Is this something that's, that's more than just a, 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 a celebration or an emotional experience? Is this something that you show your commitment to? This is, this is what you're living for. You say, well, Pastor, I don't have children. Well, yes, you do. In the body of Christ, there are children all around you. You can teach this to other Christians. Encourage them. You don't have to be in, a, in an individual family to have this privilege to encourage one another, to build each other up. That is the corporate sense as we come together. Sometimes the most important thing for you on the Lord's Day is not going to be necessarily what's preached from this pulpit. And you might say, whoa, wait a second there, Pastor. Isn't it the Word of God? Yes, it is. But it may be the Word of God that's applied to you in a song that you sing, where a truth comes home to you in a way that doesn't come through the sermon. Or maybe it's a sister who comes alongside you and sees your difficulty and speaks a word from the, from the scriptures or speaks a, a loving extension of the gospel into your life. And the Lord uses that. You don't get that sitting at home watching the live stream. But why else do we come to worship? Well, another aspect is not only what his mighty deeds is, but who he is. Look at verse 2. Praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise Him for according to His excellent greatness. Nothing about the specific acts of God. It's applied to everything about Him. Supremely His work in Jesus Christ to bring about salvation. I love Psalm 139 that celebrates the attributes of God. His sovereignty. His omniscience. That means He knows everything. Oh, isn't it in the desire of our hearts? To have someone who knows us, really, and can speak into our lives? Well, we do have one who knows us. The Lord. His omnipotence, His all-powerfulness, His omnipresence, His presence everywhere, His grace, His mercy, His kindness, His holiness, His faithfulness, His justice, His wisdom, and on and on you can go. There is so much about God that is worthy of our praise. Men disappoint us. No matter how perfect a man or a woman or a relationship seems, there's always another angle. But with God, no matter what way you look at Him, He is always righteous. He is perfect. He's not distant or aloof. No, He comes down and pays the price. So we worship Him because of His mighty acts and because of who He is. And we worship Him in heaven and we join his, the chorus in heaven, but we worship Him here on earth in His sanctuary. So we've seen where and why, but thirdly, how do we do this? The psalmist shows us what he means in verses 3 to 5. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud, clashing cymbals. So do we have a problem here at CRBC that we only have a guitar? We need to add to these things? Well, not exactly. First, we need some motivated musicians or those wanting to learn to step up and serve. That's important. And it's important here to note that there is a sustainable argument, that there is a sustainable argument in Scripture against using instruments, as some of our Presbyterian and Reformed argue, although 
uh, we would say, no, this is clear evidence that there is worship that is accompaniment. But not only do we have instruments here, but we have the revelation, which points to the use of harps and other instruments raised in the worship of God. But before we get to those instruments, let's just consider what they meant to the Israelites. To the Jew, their praise was enhanced not only musically by these instruments, it was also enhanced historically by these instruments. Let me tell you why. When you read the psalmist here, and he says, if you really want to worship God, get out the trumpets, get out the stringed instruments, get out everything you can bang. He's saying this because those instruments are richly attached to the history of the nation of Israel. When you think of trumpeters, you might think, as I do, I used to play the trumpet. You might think of Louis Armstrong or Miles Davis. But when a Jew saw and heard a trumpet, what did he think of? Can't mean to them what it can't mean to us what it didn't mean to them. Any devout Jew would remember the great religious assemblies and festivals. Trumpets were blown on the Day of Atonement when sacrifices were being offered. Trumpets were also blown when the Ark of the Covenant returned to Israel. David danced with joy before the Ark. Trumpets called people to worship, to battle, to crown the king. There's a lot of history attached to these instruments. The harp and the lyre were tied to the joyous celebrations like the dedication of the temple or the new walls being built in Jerusalem after the exile. Likewise, the symbols were part of the Old Testament temple worship. The tambourine was not some country music accompaniment. And please, no, I have to be clear in this church particularly that I'm not disrespecting country music. <laughs> but that is what a lot of people associate with it. It was a percussion instrument that was used to celebrate military victories with dances such as Miriam and the women did in Exodus 15 after the Israelites conquered the Egyptians or more properly after God destroyed Israel's enemies. We're not talking about the dancing, by the way, today, the sexual dancing. We're talking joyful delight. It wasn't a regular part of corporate worship as we know it, but in times of great joy, we saw it. We see examples of it. The absolute opposite, by the way, of dancing is mourning. In the book of Ecclesiastes, the writer of Ecclesiastes reminds us that there is a time in our life for dancing and for mourning. There is Time for joyful exuberance. My youngest is seven years old. and A couple of Sundays ago, I caught him skipping to church. He literally does it all the time. It's, uh, you think about it, skipping to church. Why do children skip? Because they're happy. They're going somewhere that they want to be. There's no real other reason. He enjoys skipping. He's happy. It's an expression of his joy. There's an, there's an importance, there's a practicality of this. The point that the psalmist is making here is that there's a whole, comprehensive whole being response in worship. It engages our minds and our bodies, our senses and our intellect, the full orchestra, strings, woodwinds, and brass. And I think more practically, as we come together, are you fully engaged? when we come together in worship? Do you arrive on time? Do you prepare your hearts and your minds so that you are here to receive God's word? That this is the market day of the soul for you? 
You wouldn't think about arriving to work late. Because you need to prepare yourself, you need to get ready. This is, this is what... Why would you come late to the body of Christ? Why would you come? Why would that be such a low priority? I understand. Things happen. Traffic, all kinds of challenges. But why wouldn't we be intentional? Why wouldn't we be engaged? Do you stay up really late on Saturday night? And arrive dead on Sunday morning? Sometimes that happens. You have a crying child. There are circumstances. But we can seek to structure our lives so that we can be fully engaged in worship. Mind and body. Mentally alert. Expectant and prayerful as we come together. So we've looked at where and how, why we come together. We come together because of God's mighty acts, because of His attributes, who He is. We've looked at how, and that is to come together with all of our being, our minds, our hearts, our bodies. Fourthly, who are called to worship? The idea here in verse 6 is let everything that has breath come together and worship God. And this is the ultimate that we see as the picture of heaven. Right? This is the vision that that the Apostle John has in Revelation 5. He says, I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them say, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. That's a good use of breath. I know it's loud. I'm loud. I get it. But how very often do we misuse our breath? How much of your breath is spent whining and complaining? The highest use of the breath and the voice that God has given to you is to bring sincere praise to the giver of it. And why is this under command? Let everything that is on earth. Why is it command to worship? Well, the New Testament gives us the answer. It is because of the greatest and mightiest deed of God. We're all commanded to sing praise and glory to our God. 1 Peter 2 says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. We can be light because we have been exposed to the light of God's salvation in Christ Jesus. The grace that He brings to sinners like us who mired in the difficulties and the, the, the entrapments of our circumstances, uh, bound by our sin, Jesus comes. He says, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and I will give you rest. That's the promise of coming to follow Jesus Christ. We can put things on Him. And He takes our sins on Himself. He bears the wrath of God for the wickedness that we have done. And he gives us in that great exchange his righteousness, his peace that transcends all our understandings, that guards our hearts and minds in him. Is this praise, is this hallelujah at the core of your life? Are you a testimony? Do you sing hallelujah, praise Jehovah? Oh my soul, Jehovah praise. May the Lord help us in our discontent and our circumstances, to speak truth to ourselves from the Scriptures, to help us to see our heavenly calling begins here on earth, that our purpose in life 
is to sing praise to our God, to worship God, and ultimately, in the worshiping, to enjoy Him fully and completely. May God help us to give glory and to sing hallelujah to Jesus Christ. Let's pray.